The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So we're going to look today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you'd open your Bibles there. Today is part two of our message, Vengeance and Vindication. Vengeance is a subject that we might want to stay away from, and many people do. The Bible doesn't stay away from it. One of the most ominous verses in Scripture is what Paul wrote in Romans twelve nineteen. The apostle quoted Old Testament Scripture to a New Testament audience when he said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, if anything, this teaches that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. Paul was a well-studied Old Testament scholar. He was a master at Old Testament texts, and he used them repeatedly to support the doctrines that he taught the church in the New Testament. He quoted from the same passage that Jonathan Edwards, the preacher of the Great Awakening, used in its most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that verse is Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, To me belong with vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. Edward's sermon wouldn't make it into the pulpits of most churches today, at least not without significant changes. Billy Graham, in fact, preached Edward's sermon back in the late 1950s. He changed it significantly. He stripped it of God's sovereignty and salvation, and still, though, left in the parts about hell. But most churches today won't preach about sovereignty or hell, and most of them won't allow that God is a God of wrath and that he is intent on having vengeance in punishing the wicked. I continually lament, and you've heard me say this many times, that there is no preaching about sin, there is no preaching about hell, and there is no real sincere call for the holiness, the sanctification of God's people. And yet, if we are to preach the Bible and be faithful to it, we must preach all of those. Because of God's wrath, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is sin, and God hates sin. It's not God's character, and God demands that his people separate from sin and live in holiness. Unless we believe there's no justice for God's people in the world, that we will suffer for our faith without any kind of reprisal, the Bible tells us God promises he will judge the wicked and he will vindicate our faith in him. Now we see this in our text beginning with verse number 6. I don't want to start there, though. I want to start a little bit higher in the passage. Let's go up to verse number 3, and we can keep it all within that context. First, uh, or Second Thessalonians, rather, and uh, first chapter, verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. So that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, 
that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. In the fifth verse, the apostles spoke of the sufferings of the Christians in Thessalonica, And that suffering was for God's kingdom, which is equivalent to say that they were suffering for Christ. And there's never been and there never will be a person who suffers for Christ who suffers in vain. Someday there's going to be a great reckoning. All things will be made right. And in, uh, according to verse number 6, it says that it is righteous, it is just for God to recompense, that is to pay back with tribulation. It is just to enforce retribution against those that harm his children. Now we looked at that last week as the first point of our outline. We'll review just briefly. We looked at first the righteousness of retribution. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. In Zechariah 2 verse 8, the prophet wrote that those who harm God's people touch the apple of his eye. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. The apple of his eye, that is a tender expression of God's love for his people. God tells us that we belong to him. We belong to the Almighty. We are His children. And He says, those who harm you, do it as if it has been done to His Son, Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus said, you don't touch my people. Keep your hands off my people. If you offend my people, it's better for you to have a huge stone tied around your neck and to be cast into the deep blue sea. God repays and He repays in kind. Recompense, that word means to repay in kind. It's, a, it's an Old Testament law of Israel for governing justice. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's the expression of it. The Lord is the ruler of heaven and earth and he always acts in perfect justice and he recompenses eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Touch his and he will pulverize you. In scripture, this law is often demonstrated. Before the Exodus, Pharaoh drowned all the male Hebrew babies in the river. At the end of the Exodus, when Israel was leaving Egypt, God drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. In Esther, wicked Haman plotted to destroy the Jews, but it was Haman and his sons who in poetic justice were hanged on gallows that were made to hang God's servant Mordecai. God's prophet Daniel was undermined by the king's advisors who tricked the king into sending Daniel to the lion's den. And then when Daniel was vindicated, those same advisors and their families were thrown into the den of lions and they were eaten alive. And then there are those Jewish leaders who rejected Christ and refused the kingdom and crucified him. 
And in just a few short years, their entire religious system came crashing down when the Romans, who were their allies in the crucifixion, burned their temple to the ground and destroyed Jerusalem. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. The God we serve is a timeless God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same God today that he was in the Old Testament. Now, many people try to tell you that, oh, it's a different God. God doesn't act like that. That was the wrathful God back then. There is a different God. No, the same God of the Old Testament is God in the New Testament. He has been God in the same way for all the centuries from then until now. And he is still the God of perfect justice. And he will always repay those who touch the apple of his eye. It is just and right for him to do it. But again, you meet many people who say, well, that's just inconsistent with God's love. And when they say that, they don't understand God's holiness. They don't understand God's righteousness. And neither do they understand how awful their sins are against the holy God. It is just unimaginable, it's wicked, it's blasphemy for preachers who claim that they know God, that they will not preach God's retribution against sinners in the fires of an eternal hell. Now you can listen to last week's message, you can hear more about that, or you can just keep tuned in today because the Apostle Paul is not through with this subject. Now Paul then continues in this text with another righteous thing that God does. He starts off first by saying that it's right to repay with retribution those who harm his people. And then he goes on to say that it is righteous to reward his people with rest. The ability for Christians to endure their persecutions, the sufferings that they go through in life, is proof that they belong to God. And the fact that they can endure, that they don't give up, that they keep trusting, that proves that God is working in them. They are truly His children. If God is in them, then they will be comforted, and they are assured that He keeps all of His promises, and that He will give eternal rewards for their faith. So the second righteous thing that God does is to reward His people. It is right to reward them with rest. That is number two on your listening sheet today. We're going to talk a little bit about the rest for the redeemed. In verse number seven, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. God promises rest for believers. Now troubles, sufferings, all these things that we go through, they are the lot in life for Christians. Bible says that over and over. The New Testament is filled with that. Suffering is the territory of God's people and always has been. But the Word of God promises it won't go on forever. This will continue in our present lives. We needn't hope to escape it because it's God's design for us. God uses these things that we go through for our sanctification. But it's also true that He will not let it continue forever. So some of you going through these things may ask, well, when does it end? Well, this is the reason that the second coming of Christ is called the blessed hope. Because all of this ends when the Lord returns from heaven. When he comes, he brings the promised rest for his people. Now, in the Bible, there are different types of rest that are spoken of. The Sabbath is a rest. This is when God rested from his work of creation. And the Sabbath is emblematic of the believer who lays down his work and 
is relieved of the burden of his sins. He enters rest that's provided by God's salvation. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he spoke that to people who were terribly oppressed by scribes and Pharisees under a very oppressive law system. They would never, the people would never be saved by the things that those those leaders told them to do. And so what Jesus did then was to offer them rest through the marvelous grace of God. You don't need to keep working for your salvation. You can't do enough for God to be saved. And so he pulls that all back and he says, by God's grace, by what God did for you, by this unmerited favor of God, that's the way that you're saved. And you can find your rest from all this labor that you've been involved in by trusting in God's marvelous grace. Well, salvation is a wonderful rest, no question, but that is not the rest that Paul is speaking of in the passage. The Thessalonians already had rested in their salvation. Rather, you might say that in their Christian lives, they were still living in restlessness. And did you know that before God begins his earthly kingdom, that even in heaven, there is restlessness? Did you know that? Have you ever heard that? Oh, for sure, we know that people in heaven are saved. There's no, no possibility they ever lose their salvation in heaven. But I want you to listen to this scripture in Revelation that describes a scene in heaven that just perfectly fits this subject today. This is Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. Now we're talking heaven here. Souls that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they crowd with a, uh, cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? These are people that will be killed in the tribulation under the reign of the Antichrist. And here they are seen in heaven under the altar and they're restless. They cry out for vengeance on those that persecuted and killed them. And their vengeance is coming. From chapter 6, it's just a short ride over to chapter 19. And there Jesus Christ comes and brings his righteous kingdom over the whole earth. And when he comes, he comes to judge and make war. He comes to defeat all enemies and destroy them. He comes to end that restlessness of these souls that are in heaven as he brings them back with him to rule and reign with him on this earth. Jude said that Enoch prophesied this. He said, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Why does he come? He comes to avenge. They come back with him to reign with him. The millennial kingdom is a time of rest for God's people. And there's yet another rest that's spoken of in Scripture. Uh, this is the eternal, permanent rest that we have in heaven. After the earthly kingdom is over, God creates a new heaven and new earth, and there is an eternal rest for his people. Make a trip to the cemetery. You'll see tombstones on them that say, Rest in peace. And yet most of the people that are in those graves have no rest at all. And that's because they don't know Christ or didn't know him. But for those who trust Christ and know him, the, the rest of heaven is theirs. Heaven is a place where there's never any more sin. There are no more heartaches. There's no pain. There's no persecution of any kind. There's no sorrow. There is no crying in heaven. 
As the song says, all is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. And then in another song, uh, this one comes to mind. Who knows, this might be a song that's led by the Thessalonian church. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. Just one look at his dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. And isn't that the very hope that Paul offers these believers who suffered persecution? This is what he tells them here. You that are troubled, rest with us when you receive, when you see Christ return from heaven. All your trials will seem insignificant then. Christ gives endurance in your trials now to prove that you belong to him. Now let me comment a little bit more before I move on. That God must keep this promise to his people. He must keep this promise of rest because he made another promise to his son. God's promise to his son, the father said, if the son would die for these people, that he would give them to him for an inheritance. If he would suffer and die for them, God said that he would be satisfied with that suffering and justice would be satisfied and God would forgive all of their sins and make them fit to go into heaven to be with him eternally. And so that means if there is just one for whom Christ died that fails to make it and is not redeemed, they won't enter into that rest that God promised. And therefore God does not keep his promise to his son. Now, folks, that's very serious theology. It's one of the key reasons that we believe in all five of the doctrines of grace. That Christ died for those he redeems. He saves every one of them. Paul said in his first letter, in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, that Christ died for us, that we would obtain our salvation. Now, in consequence, what does the apostle say to everyone who trusts Christ? More promises. Romans 8 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that... We suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. In 2 Corinthians 4, he wrote, For our light affliction. Oh, I've commented on it so many times, I just can't believe the way that Paul put that. Our light affliction. How does someone who is beaten with so many stripes as Paul was, thrown into lion's den, Robbed, shipwrecked, all that he went through. And he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Very simply, what happens to us now is not important. Our troubles are only temporary. What we see now is temporal. What we can't see is that reward that's coming, and that reward is eternal. And that's the whole thing. That's the, that's the thing that makes this all so great. It is eternal. Our lives are just a moment. Our lives are like a vapor that passes away. But our hope, our ambition, our eternal future is to be in glory with Jesus Christ. Now, let me help you understand a little bit about the timing of this rest. When does this rest come? 
And although there is the salvation rest that's spoken of here, Paul's not speaking of the rest that comes with salvation. This is one of the places I think strengthens our millennial position. We believe that there is a literal kingdom that will come on this earth, God's kingdom. And in this kingdom, there will be perfect peace and rest. It's a time of relief for God's people. God won't allow any harm as, as everyone is under his authority and his people rule and reign with him. Now, you can read many, many millennial passages in the Old Testament. They're just overflowing with this theme of peace and rest, of prosperity, of abundant uh, prosperity and harmony. It's many, many passages in the Old Testament. And yet there are many Christians who don't believe in the kingdom. They don't believe that there will be this literal kingdom on the earth, even though the scriptures say so much about it. And they say, well, no, we are living in that promised kingdom now. We are in the kingdom of God right now. This is that millennium that the Bible speaks of. But I would have to ask you, where is the peace? Where is that in your life today? Where is the relief? Where is the rest? Where is the relief from all the trouble? How is Satan bound, as the scripture says he will be, so that he doesn't bother us? Do you have any sense at all that these things are happening now? That it's marvelously wonderful for God's people all over the world now? No. The time is not now. It's in the future. We're waiting for that time. We're troubled now. We are enduring now. Now see in verse number 7 and 8, there are prerequisites for this time of relief. It's not the rapture of the church. And some people might think that, that when the Lord comes, when he raptures the church, then... The whole world is in peace. No, not quite yet. Because many that are saved afterwards, those who didn't hear the gospel of Christ, there will be some saved after Christ comes. And the Bible says they're going to go through many tribulations. It's going to be very hard for any person who trusts Christ during the tribulation period. But rather, the peace that Paul is speaking of here is a peace that comes after tribulation. It actually comes in the next phase of Christ's return. It happens when the Lord returns with his army from heaven. Now notice in verse number 7, it comes with the revelation of the Lord. Verse 7, and you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. It comes with the revelation of the Lord. Revelation is the same word as apocalypse. It means unveiling. It indicates it will be seen what hasn't been seen. It's the revelation of the Mysteries of Christ, things that believers don't know any, unbelievers don't know anything about. An unbeliever never understands about the deity of Jesus Christ. They never understand his power and authority. They never understand his retribution. But when this unveiling happens, there is no mistake. The entire world won't see that at the rapture. God will take his people out and the world is plunged into a time of tribulation. They won't see the Lord Jesus when he comes in the rapture. But with this reveal, they do. Because he comes back with this army from heaven with mighty angels. And that's when the entire world learns who Jesus is. These are angels that are the instruments of his power. They do his command. They exercise his authority. To give you a glimpse of it, turn over to Matthew chapter 13, if you will. And here, Jesus is in a discussion of what he's going to do when he comes back. He taught his disciples that he is going to return to this world in power. 
This is in Matthew 13, beginning in verse number 41. Matthew 13, verse number 41. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Flip a few pages forward to the 16th chapter, verse number 27. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. There is vengeance in chapter 13. There is vindication in chapter 16. There is retribution in chapter 13. There is reward in chapter 16. And then if you'll turn just a few more pages to chapter 25, verse number 31. Matthew 25, verse number 31. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations... And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. This is called the judgment of the nations. This is the time to take vengeance on the mistreatment of God's people in the tribulation. This is the time to rectify the restlessness of those souls that are under the altar. And to these people in Thessalonica, Paul promised that the Lord would take care of them. There's relief from all this restlessness that you go through. All, all the, the pain and troubles that you're in, it's all going to end. And there will be righteous retribution again for those that afflict you. But there will also be this wonderful reward of rest. Now there's another characteristic of, the, of this end times expectancy. This is in verses 8 and 9 of our text. In, in 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9... In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Our third observation is the fate of the fallen. The fate of the fallen. What happens to this fallen race of people that don't trust Christ? What happens to unbelievers? Well, that's a good question. And if you want to find out the answer, you've got to turn over rocks to find a preacher that will tell you. What happens to the unbeliever? All well, the preachers are busy smiling and ignoring unbelief. They're working on and trying to satisfy everybody's felt need, making sure there's a program from everyone from alcoholics to nail biters. And so they have their 10 or 12-step programs to a higher power who always wants to help you but will never condemn you. Never a step of punishment, even for those who think that he's nothing more than just a higher power. The Bible says you better know him. You better know who this higher power is. You better believe him because he has the power of eternal life. Can I tell you something about that? If he lets his children suffer to prove that they're his, do you think this higher power has any interest in relieving the suffering of those that don't believe him and just think he's an unidentifiable higher power? 
Oh, you better know who he is because there is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Now listen to what he says about those that don't obey the gospel of Christ. Here in the verse it says, They are punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. What is this destruction? Well, it's clear it's not annihilation because the scripture says it's everlasting. This goes on and on and on throughout all eternity. This is hell. It's the everlasting burning fires of hell. Now next time when we come back, we're going to split off here from this text and do a little excursus on hell. So I'll save more of that discussion for next week. But I want you to notice what most people never consider when they think of hell. That is if they think of it at all. What don't they consider? Well, they're, they're very, very concerned about flames, and they should be. Some people want salvation only because of the flames, and they don't care anything about love for Christ or obedience to Him. They want to avoid seething, burning flesh and the physical part of the Lord's retribution. They don't know about this other part. This is the mental torture that encompasses much of what they will be punished with. Now, maybe you didn't know this, but you can see in the verse that there is exclusion from the presence of God who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. They don't know that God made man for fellowship. There is no fellowship of people with others in hell. There's no fellowship with God there. Hell is darkness. It's blackness. It's every person for himself. And still, these people that are in hell, every one of them has knowledge of God. People today, as we talked about last week, have knowledge of God. There's innate sense that there is a God. We know this, and yet we suppress, or people who don't believe suppress that knowledge. So they're continually working against their nature to suppress this this innate knowledge of God. And there's always this tension that exists there. Putting down, trying to suppress what they know to be true. There's an uneasiness if they deny God. So there's restlessness because they're always fighting that innate knowledge. You ever notice this, that people that are casual about their belief in God, they don't really spend any time arguing about it. Uh, They're not trying to prove God's existence. We just believe that there is a God and we know it's true. But you take an atheist, he can never shut up about it because he's always offended. He's always fighting it. He's always angry about it. Sixty years ago, Madeline Murray O'Hare wouldn't stop trying to rid, rid every mention of God in government. She was so offended and she wanted everybody else to be offended too. That's suppression. That's a fight to keep down the innate knowledge of God. And so it keeps that atheist fighting and fighting with everybody. And the reason they do is because all of us were created to have fellowship with God. And if that's taken away from us, there is never any rest. You take it away for for eternity. And there's always a restlessness that will never be satisfied. Even though at the same time, these people want nothing to do with God. We find rest. They never find rest. I remember many years ago visiting a, a good friend in Kentucky who was dying of cancer. He was in the last days of his life. His disease was ravaging his body. The pain was just intense. The cancer finally was going to his brain. So he was struggling. I remember him in his bed. He would get up and he'd get up and down. He would rise up in the bed and then he would fall back. He would turn over and over and then he would get up again and then he would fall back. He couldn't get comfortable. 
just didn't know what to do with himself. There was just no relief. And he wasn't even conscious of what was causing his problem. Just no relief. Over the years, I've thought about that. And I've thought about how it must be in hell. Now, the man I'm talking about was a good Christian, and I have every confidence that today he is in heaven with relief. But I thought about the man as I looked at him, and I thought, what about those who don't know Christ? What about those who are in hell? They have no relief in hell. There they are in the burning flames. And if not for the flames, there's also this mental anguish of being alone and separated from what man was created for. And that is to have fellowship with God. And this is the fate of the fallen. Not only those flames, they'll be shut out forever from God's presence. You don't have the capacity to understand forever. You don't know what it's like. You can't think of forever. That just doesn't register with us. So what we do is we tend to compensate for that and we think, oh, suffering ends. The natural man thinks that when he dies, that's the end of pain and suffering. You find people today that take their lives to relieve themselves of pain and suffering. Governments in other countries and now even in our own more and more favor assisted suicide because they believe they help people end their suffering. They don't have any idea. They don't have any idea. People will awake. They die and awake to relentless pain and sorrow with no hope of relief. And the least that they misunderstand is they're going to be without God forever. Now listen, when he comes in the power of his glory, it's too late to change anything. Isaiah wrote, And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for the fear of the Lord and for the glory of His majesty when He ariseth to shake terribly the earth. It is the fate of the fallen to realize too late the majesty of the Lord. He will return. They won't know what to do with themselves. They won't know to do anything other than try to hide from Him. And if you don't believe, it'll be too late. And there is no place to hide from His glory. Now let me conclude with verse number 10. You will rest, verse 10 says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in them all that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. It's a big verse for us to consider. There isn't time to do it justice. But we'll conclude with this. The fourth observation is the gathering for glory. This gathering for glory. Jesus is coming back to avenge his persecuted people. The apple of his eye was touched and the persecutors are going to pay in his retribution. Oh, but things are so much different for believers. The revelation of Christ will be different for us. He comes to gather us. He comes to reward us and to reward in degree for the sufferings of all his people. The world looks at us and say, oh, you're just a bunch of fools. You're a bunch of crazy people. They don't see any profit in serving Christ. We refuse the pleasures that they so much enjoy and to them it looks like stupidity. Why aren't you out here with us enjoying all of our vices? Why aren't you doing the same things that we do? I mean, after all, it's satisfaction of self, isn't it? Touch that unclean thing. Do that thing that you shouldn't be doing because that's pleasing to the flesh, isn't it? 
And they look at us and, uh, us and say, oh, why don't you step out on your wife? Why don't you go out on your husband? Why don't you go out drinking? Why don't you take the drugs? Why don't you smoke the marijuana? Why don't you have all those vices? And they are so wrong about what's going to happen because one day those people will see us take our place beside Christ and he will be glorified for what he does in us and through us. Then the saints will stand back in amazement at the work that Christ did for them. Can you see all of that now? The answer is no. You can't see it now. You can't see that. No more than the world can see it now. So why don't you react just like they do? Well, there's a big difference between you and them. And it's called this thing. It's this thing called faith. God gives you faith. You accept all of this by faith. You have a God-given mind of faith. That's why you don't give in to the world's vices. But did you know, just like suffering, faith will end? Someday you won't need faith. Why? Because you'll see it right before your eyes. You'll experience the literalness of it. Your faith will end in sight as you see everything that you hope for. And when you see what you hope for, you'll marvel at that because it's going to be so much more than you ever hoped for. You'll never, your imagination can't even touch this, what it's going to be like to see Christ and realize Christ. The Thessalonians believed, and because they believed, they would see Christ in glory. Now I want you to go back to 1 Thessalonians for just a minute in chapter 5. In your Bible, you probably only need to turn a page or look up the page. Once again in 1 Thessalonians 5 in verses 9 and 10, listen to this. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, who died for us? When Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse number 9 comes true. That's when we obtain our final salvation. We escape the hell that we deserve. We belong there. We should go there. Scripture says, by nature, we were the children of wrath, even as others. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2. But though we are deserving of wrath, we escape it because of God's mercy and grace. Christ, the Bible says, died for us that we would obtain glory with him. Now, in that day, we'll marvel that Christ let sinners deserving of wrath become his brothers and sisters, his saints, his holy ones. Can you imagine that preachers won't preach about sin and hell? And they don't let people see this marvelous contrast of God's grace to their own total unworthiness. God's grace is greater, it's magnified in enormously greater ways when we preach about sin, when we preach about his wrath, when we preach about his justice, when we preach about his retribution, and when we preach about his rest. We only learn who God is and who Christ is when we preach all of his word. So if preachers don't preach these subjects, people won't be glorified in him. Preachers are just too worried that the true gospel is too destructive to people's feelings. The true gospel is too destructive to self-esteem. It's too humiliating to believe what the Bible says about us. So we just won't tell you. 
They withhold all that information thinking that they're going to glorify God in a greater way than God says he will be glorified. That's a lost man's thinking. That's a heretic's thinking. What these people have done, they've figured out a God whose ways are past finding out. The only problem is they figured out the wrong God. Our God, the Bible's God, is a God of vengeance and vindication. So what's our hope? Why do we endure persecutions and afflictions? It's because our eyes aren't on us. And our eyes aren't on today. Our eyes are on the prize that defies imagination. Our eyes are on the Lord. Our eyes are on the future. When he will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. John wrote, He that testified these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen, even so, come, Lord Jesus. You that are troubled, rest. That's what we want. We want rest. And so we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and yes, we do say, come quickly. Lord, it's a troublesome world that we live in. Many folks in our own congregation here have... Their troubles and trials, and sometimes they think God is so far away. They think, Lord, that you are not listening, that you don't see. And that's when we need to go straight to the Word of God and see that these things are perfectly described in the Scriptures. And then also see that you have so much prepared for us. You've made the future ready in such a way that our wildest dreams, imaginations could never see it with the mind's eye. Lord, by faith, we trust it to be true. I ask, Lord, you'd speak to the troubled soul today and one who's wondering, when will it end? Well, it tells us here when it will end. And so, Lord, we look for your coming. And should we die before you come, we know that immediately we wake up in the presence of the Lord, not separated from him for eternity. And then also, Lord, we pray for that soul here today that doesn't know you as Savior. We, we try to give the Bible's description of what happens. Scriptures are also very clear about that. There's no guesswork here about what happens to an unbeliever. Lord, we pray that you would give them faith, open up their eyes of faith to see Jesus Christ, him crucified, dying for sin, taking the place of the lost, guilty sinner, so that someday he will see God. We pray for these people. We ask, Lord, you'd work in their heart today. Draw us as a church closer to you. Help us to understand Scripture, what you've said. Not to hide anything from anybody. We never helped anybody by not giving them the absolute truth of your word. Help us, Lord, to do it. Bless us now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.